Welcome to Give Methods a Chance. In this companion episode, Dr. Christopher R. Matthews walks us through a series of excerpts from Nick Crossley's Intersubjectivity, The Fabric of Social Becoming from 1996. Chris also provides us with screenshots of his own copy of the book so we can follow along with the text and see Chris's approach to reading social theory. Thanks again, Chris, for joining us for not only the first podcast explaining a bit of your engagement with Crossley and how you were inspired by him and how you've taken your ideas other directions, but sticking around so we're actually going to get into some of Crossley's original writing. So thanks for doing yeah, that. Yeah, that's what. Looking forward to it again. Can you tell us what you... You sent me three images, which I'm going to share on the site so people can follow along as we actually read through some of this stuff, but... How did you choose this particular excerpt, and what what is this? What is this? Uh, what is this from? Okay, so it's from um, Nick Crosley, ninety six, intersubjectivity subheading the fabric of social becoming, and the first image is from the top of chapter two. The chapter is subjectivity, alterity, and between on radical intersubjectivity, which is one of those titles where you're like, oh my god, your heart sinks, and you're yeah. like, Jesus Christ, but actually. It's relatively simple. We can we can look at that. The, yeah, I mean, we could spend an hour just on each one of those yeah. words, right? Um, <laughs> and probably not understand, can, especially this concept of radical, which I want oh, I want to come back we're to. We have to look at that because I think radical is one of those one of the most overused words that's never really explained what makes something radical. So, where do you use this work when you're teaching, or is this more for your just your own research, something that you've read over and over? Right. Yeah. Th- th- no chance with my students, unfortunately. Bless their cotton socks. They are sports students. And they get very little social theory on purpose, right? We we have three modules where we do social, sociology with them. And my th- fourth year module isn't really even a sociology module. It's a critical thinking module. I look at them to look at critical issues. So this is stuff for me um, and for anyone else who wants to nerd out on it and probably some of my future PhD students, this is where I'll go with this. I don't see... Uh, I mean, I, I've never really taught on mainstream sociology stuff. I'd love to teach this. Jesus, it'd be amazing because it helped my understanding so much. But I, I don't, I don't see a path how I would be able to teach this to my students at the minute. I mean, one thing I just wanted to kind of set it up with is people can see from the images is the the, the writing on them as well. Um, you can't see on these ones, I don't think, but there's also a green pen on some of them, which is the I'm marking out the three different times that I've read it, three different colours. Red was first, where I basically a lot of my notes in red are wrong, and I look back and I'm like, I don't scribble them out because I just know they were wrong. It's fine, but. The green ones, which you can't see in this, are a bit better than the blue ones are the ones which I've gone, right, that's it, that's what I need. And I copy them out and I'll use them and reinterpret them and link them together for the actual writing of the book. So that's kind of that. And then um, people hate people writing on books. I'm not into that. I'm writing all over books. That's really useful, useful you explain. And I actually love that you sent these images rather than a clean text because what better insight into how we read and process ideas. Yeah. And I like, I've never done that where you actually have the different color coding, which is really clever. I, I, yeah, I didn't do it on purpose. It just happened like that. It just, it just happened that way. So I'll definitely do it again, though. It's really useful for me. One of the tragedies in my life is that most of my books were stolen right as I finished my PhD program. So I lost. Books. Uh, people didn't know what were in the boxes. I think oh, there were a lot of yeah. disappointment, a lot of social theory. So I think in, there's a dumpster somewhere that was filled with a lot of social theory in these marked up books because I'm similar in that I never transfer my notes to a computer. I don't think it's useful for me. So I have these books that it's just all this paint, all this ink all over it, all gone somewhere. Somewhere in Minneapolis, oh, someone stumbled Rachel. upon a bunch of boxes full of obscure theory that cannot be read. <laughs> yeah. So the, 
yeah, I have a whole library downstairs, and one of our one of kind of my main just a bit of a sideways thing is one of our main goals in life is to become digital nomads. Have you heard that phrase? Yeah, yeah. Where you basically we're gonna sell up or or rent the house and then go and work anywhere because yeah. I work mainly online now. So I've got to actually use these books. The reason I can't go for two years is I've got two books to write, and I need these books <laughs> to do it. Once that's done, yeah. I'm hoping my library and the rest of our gear will just go into storage because I won't need them. So I'm like frantically trying to finish these books while I've got my books. Yeah, so we can get and then away. you're truly free. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the, the books are, and the dog is what keeps us here, but we can travel with the dog, can't travel with the books. Yeah. So I'm locked in, like I'm locked into the <laughs> books more than anything else. It's the one thing that's right. holding me here. Yeah, anyway. All right, that, anyway. that's a good indicator of how much these notes actually matter. So let's... Uh, Let's get into this. Um, why don't we, you can start us off, I think, right with that first paragraph. It's a really, it's a dense one, right? There's a lot in it. So why don't you read some of it and then we can stop wherever you think is appropriate and help me understand it. I'll ask some, some yeah. questions because I'm not sure what's going on in here yet. Yeah, well, it makes two of us with some degree of it, but I, I feel pretty confident with it now. So let's just deal with the title quickly. Subjectivity, we kind of get that. Alterity, like otherness, alternate. Um, okay. So it's thinking about being... Not just other focus, but but this this radical, as he calls it, interaction with the other and the between. He's he's focused on this in between space, the inter, as I've said in the first podcast quite a bit. And then he talks about radical intersubjectivity, which comes up in the first line. So let let me just read the first line. In chapter one, I develop and further consider radical intersubjectivity as defined and discussed in chapter one. Sorry, in this chapter, I started that with. This discussion will be based around four central aims, which we'll come to. But let's deal with radical because I have exactly the same issue as you. I never see the word radical used correctly, um, but I think he might be using it right. (laughs) And the reason is that when I looked at it, I was like, why the F is he calling it radical? Like, this is not the sort of dude that would say this is radical, and he's not saying it's radical in the colloquial term. Not not the political project, right? It's not about radical. Yeah, in that no, sense. he's not yeah. saying that. He's using it in the kind of, in its etymological foundation, which is a foundational understanding, right? So when you look at the term radical, it's a shift in the foundation, which can then lead to, dramatic shifts and, and the way that we think, oh, he's being radical. But what you're doing almost, yeah, is it, yeah, ontologically, when you do something radical is you shift the foundation. I see, right? okay. So sh- shifting the foundation is a radical move. But that, that's, the, that's the way he's using the term. So, because when I saw this, he basically, and we, we, met, we will hopefully get onto it, he talks about radical and egological, egological, into subjectivity ego egological so eg not ecological e, not yeah. ecg yeah, okay now, funnily enough the first time i read this whole book because I'm, I'm i was diagnosed as being dyslexic i don't really refer to myself as dyslexic but i do struggle with reading first time i read this whole book i read it as ecological eco eco <laughs> the whole book yeah because that's what our that's what our brains are trained to see right that's we see totally. ecological constantly yeah so i read this whole book with like disagreeing with the use of radical <laughs> And being like, why is he saying ecological when he's talking about the ego? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I didn't figure yeah. that out until the end. And like, once I kind of like really was like, okay, listen, I'm because I spent ages thinking I'm not calling this radical because it's not radical. And I was like, well, what is it then? And, I, and it's foundational. And, and I was like, I still don't know if the terms are good enough. So first off, radical. Yeah, when, he doesn't do enough. When I write about this, I will do a number on what radical means mm-hmm. and what it doesn't mean and how it's being used. If I'm going to use that term, I'm going to explain what that term means and how he's using it. And what he's basically trying to get at there is in the first chapter, he sets up 
that there is this foundational understanding of intersubjectivity, which you talked about in the first podcast, which I've talked about as being a part of our biology, mm-hmm. that we're biologically intersubjective beings, that we exist in the inter. And that he's kind of saying that that is a quite a radical position in that it's a new foundation to start from. Yeah. That's where I think I'm convinced by him. Okay. And it it isn't necessarily radical in its outcomes, but it's radical in its baseline. So I think that's how we're dealing with that term. And yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I've spent, you can see how much time I've spent, like stressing is the wrong word, but like musing over that sort of stuff. Before we keep going, I'm curious, is this generally how you read theory? Because I've had different guests talk about different approaches. So for instance, Seamus Khan talked about how his approach to reading theory and what he tells students is to read quickly, get through it all, uh, as fast as you can, try to just get the general ideas, and then you can go back and read it closely if you need to, but not to get caught up. Do you? T- and I've I've heard also people argue the opposite side, where you know, go slow. Better to read a tiny bit and understand it rather than get through the whole text quickly. Do you have an approach that you generally take? Because I mean, based on the marking, you're reading it pretty closely. Yeah. So personally, I've read, as I say, three times. I probably read it quite deeply first off. And I would have, when there was key words that I needed to get into, I'm very, you kind of highlighted this, I'm quite, I tried to be quite picky with my words. I want to know what words really mean. Largely because I don't trust words, right? I don't trust what terms mean and I, I want to know. And, and, and so I get into them and I have my computer open and, and I get into them while I'm reading. So I, I'm a slow reader and then I pick through. But at times I will skip stuff as well and just kind of get through because I've got to get it done. And then by the third or fourth read, things are starting to make much more sense and I can go quicker. Um, but in regards to advising people, see, when I, when I, so one, I don't really ask my students to read a lot of theory. I, I use the term in the, in the book as well, academic concepts, um, sorry, academic ideas. Never use the word theory because it scares them. And I sound, I sound like I'm kind of mean about my students. They're good, they're sharp, but they're just not into social theory. It's not their thing. They're, they're sports scientists. And it, and it is, I mean, it's scary for me sometimes, right? When you open up this yeah. new dense text, I think it's fair to, yeah. especially if the, if you don't have a, if you can't convince a student why they're doing it and it's not their, totally. and they're not getting joy from it, it's hard to assign a text like this. So, yeah. I mean, that makes complete sense. as soon sense. as you go, sorry, as soon as you go to academic ideas, they're like, all oh, right, academic ideas. So that's an idea which has something academic about it. So evidence logic clarity oh okay i know what an academic idea is but if i say that about theory they're instantly switched off because i've said the word theory and they don't give a shit and now they're going all right so this is chris's chris is asking us to look at an academic idea a social norm is an academic idea which you could talk about as theory but because i'm doing this in a more casual way with them and i'd never get them into this sort of stuff I, i i approach my encouragement of theory through that lens. So they read a paper or they read a book chapter. I'm like, what were the academic ideas in that? And they can pull them out and they're doing theory without being scared of theory. So that's that kind of thing that I do for, for people at undergrad and maybe even some of my PhD students, to be honest. Um, I'd kind of take the pressure off them. But eventually, especially when I'm moving into their final write-up with PhD students, I'm like, right, you need to, you need to pull all these ideas now into a build, like these building blocks into a wall which is theory and it's solidified and you're going to make sense out of it. So there's theory work to do and that's where the deep reading would have to come in, I think. That's worked quite well. Okay, all right, so let's, um, let's okay. get into these four central claims. Yeah, so firstly, so this is basically talking about what radical intersubjectivity is. Firstly, the human, so that human subjectivity is not, in essence, a private inner world 
which is divorced from the outer material world, materials in brackets, that it consists in the worldly praxis of sensuous embodied beings and that it is therefore public and intersubjective. So the key bits there, and I'm sure you'll have some questions, but the key bits there is that human ways of seeing the world, our subjective position, is not primarily something about an inner world in the brain, but it's external to us. It's about interactions, doing, praxis, um, with your body, with other people, and that that's how we make sense of the world around us. That's how we see the world, is through that interactional stuff. And as you know from Volume 1, I talk a lot about symbolic interaction theory, so it fits that. Well, one of the things with Crossley and this idea is that all of the theory that I've ever read and really come to really use, whether it's Elias or Bourdieu or whatever, fits this really well and it captures it for me. You have a distrust of some words, so you want to check what words mean. I have yeah. a similar reaction whenever I see something in parentheses or brackets, right? I always want to know, why is <laughs> right. that there? Why? why did you put it in yeah. brackets? Is it just because it looks kind of cool and there's an aesthetic value to it? What do you, what do you think is going on with, with here? Private inner world, which is divorced from the outer material in brackets world. Why is material in brackets there? I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm not sure. He, t he, he would normally have put outer world in, in, in what the scare quotes or whatever, the inner, inner world is in it. And... Maybe he, he wanted material in. He does talk about material to some degree, but not. It's an, odd, it's an odd inclusion. I'm wondering if it's because he's arguing against people who separate inner consciousness as this thing drifting versus the outer is where all the, the stuff is. And he's saying yeah. our inner world is also biological. It's also about the senses and engagement. The outer and inner are both these material things. But, yeah, yeah, I think that's a good way yeah. of thinking about it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm always curious is... when people throw those, you know, because it, it's it's in the 80s and 90s we saw a ton of that in social theory, right? <laughs> Everything was a word plus something in brackets. So yeah, explain what you mean, man. Yeah, yeah. you just got to explain. I have to, I have to. If, in in volume one, I like have that, and I'll explain like oh, you put this doing like this, and it means that someone's doing this, and they're trying to be clever with that or whatever. Like decode that stuff because most people reading it don't get it, and the people who do get that code, who cares about them? Like the profs who have read this for twenty years, I don't give a shit about writing for those lot. Like I don't care for them. They get it. They're better than me. I'm writing for the next generation for my students and my PhD students, like and yeah. my mates. Like, that's what I'm writing for, and I want them to be able to understand. So, but just the one that I think we need to really look at is like private, private inner world. Yeah. And in in the second volume, I've got this this. Uh, this section called the scary inner world, like the scary inner world problem, like the sociologists are like scared of talking about the mind. Um, and, I'm, and it's quite mean. And, I, and when I write, I write in a really mean way a lot of the time. I'm like very, um, I, I say what I mean and say what I think and then I have to tone it down and I tone it down and it comes in and then my copy editor looks at it and she tones it down even further. And, but at the minute, it's a really like harsh bit about all sociologists being like wimps about dealing with the inner world and what it is. Yeah, and um, and that because we put these that critique's these coming. Up. That critique's coming from sociology too, which is exciting. So there's right. a new wave of scholars Good. who are really focusing on focusing on what's the cognitive science saying, and we can't ignore that because 
so many sociologists, like you're saying, get up to that point, and then there's that black box that we can never understand, and we yeah. theorize, but we ignore the work of people actually trying to understand it, right? And, and, and when it comes down to methodology as well, right, because we rely on interviews, and interviews are on, like, let's say, reflections or retrospections or introspections. Like, oh, does that mean anything? Like, do they exist? Where are they? And if no one's engaged with that ontologically and epistemologically or theoretically, like, the, your whole research method is based on you not understanding the inner world problem. So he, he basically, he, he does what I critique, which is putting it in, in, in scare quotes, but he actually deals with it quite well. And his comment, and he doesn't use Ryle or Gilbert Ryle as much in this book as he does in the body book, but his argument is a kind of development of Gilbert Ryle's work in the concept of mind. If anyone's into that, that's the text to go to. You'll need to read it, as far as I'm concerned, probably three or four times, but it's a great text for it. It was one of the ones that we considered discussing for today, actually, I think. So what he's basically saying is, forget the inner world as a place where your thoughts exist, right? Which is a, it's a tough one. It's a little mind-bender, isn't it? Um, because really they're, they're fundamentally intersubjective in that they require a language which is external to us, all right, and internal as well, but external. So instead of saying internal or external, say inter, which is the whole premise of the book, right, intersubjective. And that those thoughts, those ideas, those imaginings are based on our interactions with people over time as embodied beings. And when you say something, I do something and think something. And though even, even the imagination, he does a reasonable job. It could have been better if he does a reasonable job on the imagination, which is this thing that's like, it, 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 that even takes you out of the world we exist in. And it's in your head. He's still saying, no, no, that is an intersubjective experience. And he actually draws on Sartre on that and said, talk, talks about Sartre's theorising of the imagination and it being a not being. And you, the reason why you know um, you're imagining is because you know it's not real, unless... You know, you're mad or, or you know, in, in some sort of, you have some sort of issues. Your imagination being unreal helps you understand what the real is, even when it's dreams. And it's also still based on the intersubjective world. And it might be a weird, twisted version of it, right? Cows in the air that are pink and whatever else. But it's still a cow. We still know the colour pink and we still know that that's not real. And that cows exist and that pigs exist, pink exists, and that me and you can talk about them in an intersubjective way. And I can tell you about my dream and I can explain it to you. So it's not inner either. It's externalised. I can explain it to you. I just might choose not to explain it to you if it's really weird. Now, that shows us the structuring of the inner world. There's certain things that I keep private because I know I should. And this goes back to... Elias talked about this, Foucault talked about this, the shaping of the self and, and what we can say and who, how we can express ourselves and what is appropriate to express. Emotions fits into this as well. So um, it's a very difficult thing for most people to grasp that this inner world isn't inner, just in the language. But it is a, it is, I think it's more of a problem with our language and our thoughts about how the brain works than it is about when you actually think it through. When you think it through, it's like, oh yeah, it starts to make sense. Okay, all right. Let's go to let's go to the second one. Since yeah, that was that was okay, all that was all from sentence. Yeah, that was all from one sentence. So we'll see, <laughs> we'll see how far we get today. <laughs> okay. Secondly, that intersub sorry that subjectivity consists in the first instance in a pre-reflexive opening out onto and engagement with alterity rather than 
in an experience of objectifying it or experience or objectifying it. So I'll, I'll say uh, when I skimmed over this, when you sent the reading to me, this was the hardest of the four points for me. Yeah. I, I thought this was the most challenging of them. Certainly. And it needs it needs the chapter to make sense out of it. So let's just go through it, though, quickly. So subjectivity again. So our kind of way of seeing the world, let's say that. Yeah, we get that part. Pre-reflective. So we exist in the first sense without reflecting. We exist. And most of life is built on not reflecting, right? Even the conversations where you reflect on what you're reflecting, initially when you say them, you just say them, you're not reflecting. And you have to stop. Pull yourself out of this stream of existence to reflect on what's just gone. Okay, so most of life is not about thinking what's just gone, but it's saying it's pre-reflective. And he does a job on this in terms of going back and looking at ourselves as kids and babies and stuff and just thinking about doing sport for example or driving a car you're not sat there reflecting on that thing you're just doing it most of life is like that but it's a pre-reflective opening out onto an engagement with the other alterity the the alternate the 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 people out there the thing so those examples are quite useful actually the car you're driving the car you, you you you're out into it and then when you're speaking to people Maybe maybe if you're doing an interview, you're reflecting about what questions you're going to ask and what they're saying. But mostly when we speak, um, you're, you're opening out into that person without reflecting on what's happening. You're in it. You're in the interspace. Rather than an experience... I think this is a slight mistake. Rather than in an experience or objectification of it. Let's focus on the objectification. Yeah, that part makes more more sense. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So rather than objectifying it. So I can stop and objectify this conversation. I can turn it into an object and I can analyse it. Yeah. That's not how I exist most of the time, right? And I can objectify my car. I can sit and I can look at it and think about it and like reflect on all that. That's not how I experience it most of the time. So he's trying to get that this way in which we interact is another way to think about this would be it's largely irrational rather than rational it's it's largely about doing and existing than it is about stopping and logically engaging the the conscious reflective mind to figure out what's going on yeah so the the experience happens before yeah the experience happens before the explanation right there's first yeah there's first that physical emotional thing that occurs that's still subjectivity and then afterwards, we start to say, I'm interacting with a police officer or a doctor or, a, or that human uh, scares me for whatever reason. Like you have, you explain after, but first it happens, yeah. right? Okay. You get scared. Yeah. And then, then you, you may at some point stop and think, oh, I was scared then. Yeah. You're probably not going to do it at the time because you were scared and the emotions taking you on. Or even, is, even before you're scared, you're simply, your stomach drops or you have the perspiration on your face or the hairs on your neck go up and then you say, I'm scared. So it's like there's exactly, levels yeah. of, okay, so that, ma- that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think it's that, that word, alterity is a word I don't use. So when I see that, I have to think through. Um, which is one of those things that happens when you read social theory, right? There's these words where yeah. you're like, well, that's not used in the language that I'm, I'm comfortable yeah, with. Yeah, otherness would be fine, I think. Or, or, or the, it, it, a lot of the time he uses between space. And I think that's quite useful because we all understand between. Like we're in the between of us is where the action's happening. It's not in my mind or your mind. It's, it's the interactions that are the key. The between is the key, the, inter, the interactions. So let's, so uh, should we go to the third point? It's not complicated, but I think that's relatively kind of like acceptable. 
The pre-reflexive is really important, though, to grasp because we move on to the ego-logical, which is reflective. And this is his key kind of separation and differentiation of the two terms. Okay. Thirdly, oh, gosh, this is the one that I struggle with a bit. Third, oh, no, this is fine for me. The, the, thirdly, the human that human action, particularly speech, I would say communication there, because communication is more than speech, necessarily assumes a social institute, socially instituted form that this form is essential to its meaningfulness. We can't have meaning in life without social institutions to make them make sense. Okay. Or specifically here, we can't have communication or any for any types of different language without the institution for, institutional form. Language makes meaning. Meaning is about social life, right? We, things are meaningful to us. This book is meaningful to me but it's only because I understand what a book is and language and the need to, to, to read and to be clever and to get a job. So that makes it meaningful. If we didn't hand over any of that, I'd find like apples and meat meaningful in a like biological sense, right? Yeah, and this is a classic George Herbert Mead, the way he talks yeah. about communication language. Okay, so there you go, yeah. He, he draws on Mead a bit. Later on in the book, actually, he draws on it more in the ecological bit, but, but yeah. Another theorist that he's obviously read loads of as well. Yeah. Okay, fourthly, so we are getting through these four points, so that's good. One paragraph we might do. Um, fourthly, that much human action and experiences arises out of dialogical situations or systems which are irreducible to individual human subjects. So when we act, it's usually in dialogue with someone or something. So he says dialogical situations, and I think the good thing to put there is it's quite obvious when, we, when we're talking, mm -hmm. but also that you act with objects around you, you act with a class in front of you, you act with the car that you're with. And to be able to understand those situations, it's irreducible to go to the human subject on its own. You'd have to look at that person doing that thing to understand what's going on. Like out of that context, that doesn't make any sense. It's the context which helps it, and the context is dialogical. You're someone who enjoys making strong claims and, and sometimes getting <laughs> okay. pushback from them. Does it bother you that he says that much human action and experience arises rather than simply human action and experience arises? Would you go as, would you go as yeah, far as to say get rid of much and just say all human action is... You're right, and he does do that in a few places, and I, and I, and I kind of in kind of somewhat sometimes mean language i'm like he's wimped out again yeah and it's not his being a wimp obviously he, it's that he's so used to writing with caveats because we so we all are but he's a very he's very careful i mean he's like yeah, you're yeah. saying he he's engaging we're not going to go through the next two paragraphs but underneath it he's bringing up merleau-ponty he's bringing up levinas he's bringing up husserl yeah. right so he's engaging with so many different people that he's a he's a very careful and well-read theorist which i think yeah it's a different project that he's engaging in than what than what you're trying to do or what I try to do in my writing. Yeah, and 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 again, I think what we talked about in the first podcast about kind of the the um, the arrogance or otherwise of social theory and and like the the stereotypical kind of arrogant French social theorist, right? I did say stereotypical, um, but there's something in that, right? The way they write, the way Sartre writes, the way Sartre was. And then Nick clearly isn't like he's that, right? That, you yeah. know it. I mean, I, I'm, I've said, I'm, I've, I've tried to contact the guy. He's not got in touch with me. He's dissed me. He probably knows I'm like going to write something that's trying to develop his book and he thinks <laughs> I'm going to get it wrong. So he's ignoring me. Fair enough. But you just get the sense that he's just, he's chill. He's he's not overly trying to kind of make his points and like make himself famous. He's just doing really, really good considered work, which people need to take on. 
And I think that's, I think he's more, and we'll come to that in the final final bit actually, because he mentions that, or he doesn't go far enough with it. And it's like, it's clearly there. He, he, he takes us, he takes us all the way, but he pulls back at that last minute. And that's in that sentence as well, isn't it? Yeah. Could have been bolder. Let's uh, let's look at the final sentence from this paragraph, and then where yeah. he, he says what we get we from won, those yeah. four, and then we could look at something from the conclusion and work through that as well. Yeah. So taken together, these four points enable us to conceptualize intersubjectivity as an irreducible interworld of shared meaning, and to understand human subjectivity as necessarily intersubjective. And that's so a strong. The part, there's a stronger point, right? Yeah. There he's saying it's necessarily this thing. Yeah, and I think let's just deal with the first part. Um, Conceptualise intersubjectivity as an irreducible interworld of shared meaning. Irreducible is really bold, isn't it? You cannot take humans out of their interworld with each other, and a part of that is meaningful, shared meaning from language and communication. And then the final part, understand human subjectivity as necessarily intersubjective. That's my that's my bit, and he's he that's the bit that I always key on. And he says that I think across the book. Words to that effect about four times. And I always like, I'm like, yes, you've done it. You've said it. And there's a few where it's really short, snappy sentences. And he says it. And when I first read it, I didn't notice them. And at the end of it, I was like, he's never said that this is fundamental. And I wanted him to, and he does. And he does say it, but it's scattered. And it's in these odd little places as well. Like, this is quite a, this is this is a setup for what comes. I don't think he says it at the end. I want that one-two punch sort of thing at the end where it's like, I'm saying this again, this means something. So, Shia, I think, so just before we shift on, this is on chapter two. And he, he does another number of dealing with this radical intersubjectivity that we've talked about. And then he sets up ego-logical, right? So this is where we get where most of us would understand intersubjectivity. So this is where it aligns quite neatly with Robert Proust's work, Bloomer's work, Goffman, all those symbolic interactionists who would talk about um, empathy would be a part of this, Vishten, like the understanding of someone else and being able to interpret what they're doing, but but doing it through a way in which we're reflecting and considering oh, right, that person's doing that for these reasons, and I understand them because of that. And I can check that, and I can interact with them, and I can check it, and I can get more or less right. But it has something about a kind of rational, logical, considered reflection to it. And that's the ego-logical. That's the one which I think mostly in research methods people discuss. And in volume one of the book, I use that as the one that I'm mainly talking about because this is actually, as we said, a little bit radical, a bit harder for people to grasp. So in the next chapter, he talks about that, and then he develops these ideas, and he, he basically differentiates into subjectivity. He's the first person that I've seen do that as a targeted project of his book um, and really pull it together, and I think that's its biggest contribution. Later on, he brings in power through Foucault, but it, Foucault isn't great at locking some of the discursive stuff down in the interactions. Intersubjectivity allows that. And he also draws on Habermas, in terms of looking at life worlds. So, I mean, I don't think that's the best part of the analysis. I think there were better ways he could have done it. But also, I'm not really a big fan of Habermas, to be honest. Um, so, again, like, what what a well-read... Like, it's a joke. I don't know how you could even do it. I mean, yeah. just 
I don't know. And some of the areas, like you were saying, it's the Habermas one is more of a surprise, right? Because the other theorists kind of travel together where when, yeah. once you read one, it's not surprising that he's drawing on, on Merleau-Ponty, right? That's the person you yeah. draw on. It's not surprising he's drawing on Mead when you're talking about language, when you're talking about the self. But you don't necessarily draw on Habermas as well. And it might be the time that he was trained, right? He's, he's older than we are. So uh, maybe that was just the essential reading of the era. Um, yeah. But should we Probably. let's choose a paragraph from the conclusion, too. This is kind of fun to get insight into how you read this stuff and what you take away from it. Um, right. What should so we what should we look at? The, con- the context. So let's just set this up. So we go through the book and he, and he as I said, he kind of does his he does his kind of subtle, quite humble writing, never really gives us the one two punch. And I'm waiting for it. And he mentions the fabric of society or the fabric of uh, how we're, we're weaved together in a few places. And it's kind of almost passing comments. But it's the subtitles of the book. And the conclusion is literally these two pages. And I got to the conclusion. It's a cracking conclusion. But it this, needs wait, to so be. This, this is the entire this conclusion. Okay, so, yeah. you, so, so you sent me two pages. I, I assume this was part of, but not the whole thing. So this is it, which is pretty fascinating yeah. insight into how he writes and theorizes and going back to the idea of humble. Um, you know, whatever yeah. we mean by that term. Two-page conclusion yeah. seems to be that. Or... And this is the unfair reading. And this yeah. is how I would read it of my students. If a student handed me this in, and obviously it would be much shorter, but if they handed in a conclusion which did this, after every other chapter is, let's say, eight to 10,000 words, and this is 300, I'd say, you've done a lot of work here. Why have you wimped out at the end? Yeah. <laughs> Why have you not properly... Sh- you, you have proved to me, student, not, not Nick Crossley, but you have proved to me that you can have a conversation with me as peers on this topic, well done, you're going to get a really good mark. But your conclusion is rubbish. Why are you not smashing it out of the ballpark with your conclusion? Because you've earned the right to. And the worst thing with our undergrads, right, is where they think they know stuff and they know nothing and they've not put the work in. And then when they write a crap conclusion, that's fine because they've done a crap piece of work. But the second worst is when they put all of the work in, they get bored and don't finish it properly. And that would be the the mean reading of what Crossley's done here, right? Yeah. That would be the, 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 the yeah, kind he, of nasty way. And, and he, I mean, it's, he gained our trust, right? In the first part, yeah. he, he gained our trust. He built all the capital, whatever terms we want to yeah. use. This is his chance to make grand claims about why this matters and what to do with it. Yeah. Um, he doesn't care, does he? He doesn't care yeah. for the grand claims. He's done the work. He's interested in the knowledge. He's, he's read so much. He's like nailed it. He's obviously enjoyed writing this book and he's pulled it together succinctly and clearly and tight. And he has set up, his main conclusions but he's basically then left it and there's a there's a part just let me see if i can find it um it's like where to go next he asks the question like where to go next and he's like don't know <laughs> there's loads of places you could go that's yeah. fine that's good for me because i'm going to go with it and i'm going to add this and tie it into data in a much clearer way there's not much data there's, there's no data in this it's all theory and all philosophy there's lots of examples but no data as we would understand it Mine, my, mine is pushing that forward with data and evidence and doing social science, whereas this would be social theory or philosophy. So mm-hmm. I think that that, 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 that that if we were to have that as a critique, it would be an unfair critique. Mm-hmm. Right, I'm trying to do something different to him. But yeah, it is, you know, it does speak volumes, doesn't it? So let's do, let's, I, th- I think the, the best, ch- the best is just to read the start point. Okay. Um, so the conclusion is titled The Fabric of Social Becoming. Right now, this is where we basically say, listen, all that I've said that's become before this shows us the fabric of society. So he's theorizing the whole of society. That's what he's doing. He Mm -hmm. just doesn't say that. 
So in this book, I have shown by example um, how different academic traditions and disciplines can converge around the issue of intersubjectivity such that it might provide them with common ground. Exactly what I want, right? Mm -hmm. Common ground, baggage got rid of, we're all here, and I've drawn from all these people. It's exactly what he's done. Furthermore, I have combined and coordinated different versions of the concept of intersubjectivity, reorganising them according to new distinctions. They were radical and ecological, thereby showing them to be more compatible and mutually enriching. Which is also the stuff that you've talked about loving, right? Like reorganising the field to focus on the value of it rather than getting caught up with what thinker wrote it at what time period, rather. What are the the key concepts? So, So, okay. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and I think the way of thinking about this as well is he's is differentiated into subjectivity. He's, he's, he's usually, and this is what I do a lot of the time, is like look at the word and go, right, what, what is that? When, when someone says we need more education, what does that mean? They mean we need to teach people so that they change their behaviour and these are the ways that it happens. Right, okay, that's what you mean by education. So what do we mean by these terms? And intersubjectivity in the work that I was reading was thrown around quite a lot and it was never really explained other than like, like empathy, Averstein or whatever. And I was like, that's, that's not enough. He differentiated it. He properly, dedicatedly went to these books and read it through the lens of trying to understand intersubjectivity, put, separated them out and then shown how they were mutually not only reinforcing, which is a term he says there, sorry, compatible in enriching, but the same sides of, diff- of two sides of the same coin, essentially connected, fundamentally connected, and that radical has to proceed ecological and then never separated. So what that means, I think, one of the things that I take from this methodology, he doesn't talk about methods, that's the other problem that I have personally because I'm such a, a methods buff. Buff, focus. Buff would say that I'm really good. I have a focus on methods. Um, that when we focus on the ego-logical, this reflective understanding of each other, especially in science, we're neglecting this massive swath, swath of life, which is this unreflective understanding that we have with people this like immediate connection that we have with our reflection and that is very rarely put into methods right because it because it's about a feel how do mm-hmm. i how do, you, do i describe that i had a bad feeling from this bloke how do i do yeah. that as science well we find it very difficult but i do most of my life based on if i get a bad or good feeling about a bloke right that's like yeah. most of my life sorry is that right i don't walk around going is he going to mug me or not and think it through? I just get ready yeah. to be mugged if I think I'm going to get mugged and, and I'm ready for it because radical intersubjectivity would mean that I've like made that connection without even thinking. So I guess my point is there's a real strong methodological element to this. Okay, finally, I've argued that a con- uh, cons- consideration of intersubjectivity can enrich our understanding of other key concepts such as power and citizenship and he does a really good job on that citizenship bit underlying all of this however has been a more fundamental point okay we're getting there aren't we which is which it has been my main concern to establish namely that intersubjectivity is the fabric of our social becoming bang that's it that's his big thing and then in the in the next two paragraphs he he helps us understand why he uses the term becoming and why he uses the term fabric. So why don't we, let, you got time for two? Should we just do the two paragraphs? Yeah, let's do the it? becoming. Becoming's easy. Fabric's a bit more interesting. So I say, 
year. So I say becoming rather than being to indicate both the temporal structure and the essential, oh, three S's, essential completeness of the, incompleteness of the social world to indicate that the world and the multiple relationships therein are always in a process of becoming something and a never static process, highlighting that this process. And one of the things that he does touch on, and one thing that I think is often missed within social, um, social science, especially methodologically, again, is the process. So we, 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 someone will ask for my reflections on an interview and they'll be like, oh, well, that, that's what he was thinking at the time, therefore that's a thing. Not look at the process of how I might have come to that thought through the years and years of socialisation and all the rest of it. So, um, yeah, that, that being, becoming, the self being a process, um, the, the learning into subjectivity from a kid to another, that, that's a real central part. And it never being complete, right? That's the other yeah. key part. Right. Yeah. So it's it's always this process. This yeah. is the part I found this paragraph really appealing. I agree that it's okay. less complicated than it's less complicated than explanation of fabric. But I also think it's such a key point because it's something that we continue to fail to do as social scientists. Right. So that's for what sure. I, yeah. 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 Let me read a little bit more then, and then there's one bit that I definitely want to say because if you look on the the image I've put use next to it, which is my like code yeah. for write this out and use it. More specifically, though, my point in that intersubjectivity is the key to understanding human life in both its personal and societal forms. That's a, that's a cracker because he's, he's moving us beyond the duality. The, 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 sorry, the, I'm trying to still figure out how I'm going to use these terms, the dichotomy between personal and social, and he's turning them into a duality or a, a plurality, and he does that, and that's what intersubjectivity has to do. And One of the reasons why I like the term, we haven't touched on this today, but I have this thing about what, what I'm calling the grammar of thought, which is these, like, fundamental things that shape the way we think and if we're constantly using subject not object agency structure um person society it doesn't matter how much we can say that we're using those ideas in a pluralistic way we're still separating them intersubjectivity stops that dead stop we're intersubjective beings okay there's no oh i am a person that lives in society and that society structures me and i structure it and da 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 no, 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 intersubjectivity. Okay, good. And it's broken down, and this maybe is one of my problems and why I'm drawn to it, but it's broken down a thing that you get hooked in. It's reoccurring loop of like, oh, there's society again, there's economy, oh, there's my agency. Oh, fuck's sakes. Intersubjectivity stops me, and hopefully others doing that. Let me, be, let me come on to this bit, which I wrote next to it saying use. We are intersubjects, full stop. Well done. Yes, we are. Good. This is like... like the, that will be my campaign slogan for this. Our actions and thoughts are irreducible to us alone. I think that's a cracking line. It's something that everybody can really grasp. Even our kind of psychological colleagues, even our neurological colleagues will get that, right? Neurological, yeah. They'll be like, oh, yeah, of course we are. Now, they might then construct a science which somewhat shifts that away. But we are. Like, it's hard to argue with that, right? We, we don't exist out of our interactions with people. You could say, oh, but I can still measure stuff usefully in isolation. Yeah, you could try, but it, it, it is a kind of, there's a falsity to that. So I think that's a good bit there. And then let's move into this fabric bit, because that is really useful. And I actually, I'm still, I'm still figuring, I wrote something today, actually, about why I think fabric is good and bad. And I've been using landscape, and that landscape is problematic, because we live as beings in a landscape, but we live in beings in a fabric. So I'm trying to figure that out. Anyway, and so and, and also just out of curiosity to understand how you mark up your text, what when you wrote use, 
Are you also yeah. highlighting use that whole fabric section also? Is that an arrow going down to it or what's going on with that right side of yes, the page? Yes, that is, yeah. Yeah, so what I mean by that is my, my process for this is that I'll, co- I'll literally copy them out. The process of copying them out means that I really think about them because I'm now thinking, I'm, I'm, while I'm reading it, I'm reading it to understand it. When I'm copying it out, I'm reading it going, how am I going to use this? And then I'm looking at the terms with a different lens and I'm looking at it as going, right, does that mean what I think it means? As I was reading it, I thought it meant that. But now this is in my book. Like, I've copied it into a Word document, so it's going in my book. I better know what this means, and I better be able to defend it. And it puts a bit of pressure on me when I do that. So some people, would, some people wouldn't do that process of rewriting out. But for me, that's really useful. It pushes me. Uh, it's not just about copying it out so I can use it. It's about pushing me to, to really grasp so, it. So you literally type, you sit down with a Word document, you type out yeah. this paragraph. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. I'll, yeah. I will eventually, I'm on page 80 of copying these notes out. I will copy out on this page those bits and the start point as well. Um, okay. So let's, under, in, yeah, let's understand fabric. I'm okay. really curious about this one. I use the word fabric. And, and again, he only uses it about four or five times throughout. Um, and it feels like it's, a, it's a one of the, the golden threads that runs through the piece, but it's barely there, and it should have been probably a bit more through, I guess, if he was more bothered about making big claims at the end, but he's not. So I use the word fabric to denote this for a number of reasons. Firstly, to articulate with the popular expression social fabric. Into subjectivity is, I believe, he has demonstrated, I would say, precisely the fabric alluded to in this expression. It is what holds us all together in an identifiable group or unit. So I think you can certainly see that really well through language. We can certainly see that through interactions, um, through um, in social institutions. Uh, that's what he's getting at there, and that those things are inherently intersubjective. Um, or what, or what, what Proust calls an intersubjective accomplishment, which Crossley doesn't use. And I don't know if Crossley is aware of Proust's work, to be honest. And, and he wouldn't necessarily need to be, but Proust has written a lot about intersubjectivity and he doesn't use it. Anyway, uh, secondly, fabric conjures up an image of multiple overlappings and interweavings, organised and arranged in different ways, sometimes becoming more, so, sorry, sometimes becoming disorganised. It connotes a sense of unity and strength which is achieved by way of its overlapping. Um, earlier on he talks about Concretize, concrete, concretized, yeah, concrete social, um, concrete interworlds, and concrete social relationships as well. Which I think is from Schultz and um, someone else. No thread is either strong or significant on its own, but the interweaving gives it its strength and its form. Which is something that I think again we can get lost in social theory, isn't it? Like obdurate reality that things really do exist. Social facts exist. It's not all subjective. There is an inter. We know what a father is. We know what a mother is. We know what a daughter is. We know those things. Yes, there's movement, but actually there's not a lot of movement. What, is, what does it mean for when Crossley states sometimes becoming disorganized? So what would it mean for the fabric to be disorganized? I'm trying to yeah. make a sense well, of that. Think, think. Think, think of it being pulled apart and what would happen to the, the tearing of the fabric. Um, and that, I mean, just to use that analogy that I just used there, like f- family units. Mm-hmm. Well, 50 years ago, what was a family unit? It's very simple to understand. And what is it now? It's very different. The terms still make sense to us. We can still understand them, but they've been pulled. And Okay, who's the dad and who's the mum and who's identifying which way? Or are you both doing... Ident- and, and there is a complexity there, but notice we're still using the same terms. 
we still know what those words mean in a traditional sense and also in a newer sense. So that would be a kind of disorganization of a fabric, wouldn't it? I see. Does that make sense? Yeah. I like the overlappings and intertwinings. It makes sense. I just I just kind of get left with how's that different to figuration or field? And again, like discourse to a degree. I mean, I know it doesn't capture it in the same sense, but... It, it feels disembodied. Now it's not. It's a pluralistic work is doing. But I wonder if he's setting himself up in the same way that I'm setting myself up at the end, having doing all this work on intersubjective, and then going, oh, but here's society. Here it is. It's a fabric. Here it is. It's a landscape. Here it is. It's a yeah. And why? So why do you use landscape instead? What do you think is the strength of landscape? It's a mind fabric? thing. What what I'm doing is I'm I'm trying to situate real concrete world that we exist in that world is intersubjective and when we exist in a world we literally exist in a landscape and i'm and in my mind i'm thinking about walking down the street and seeing a building and thinking well that could be a set of social norms or it could be a building and it could be a bit of language and it's the lang it's the landscape within which i intersubjectively create but also interact so I'm trying to lock it down in something that I literally exist within as a metaphor, rather than we don't live in a fabric, right? There's no fabric other than my clothes around me. I literally don't live in a fabric. We do live in a landscape, a, a real landscape. So part of me is trying to kind of really lock this down in language that's really clear to people that gets past some of the problems that we have. You say fabric and everyone's like, oh, yeah, that's a metaphor. It's a useful metaphor, but it's still a metaphor. But so is figuration and so is field. And I always had a problem when I was when I was learning sociology and a lot of the early stuff that I read was figurational stuff. And I was like, what the F is a figuration? And I get it. I can tell you what it is. It's a scientific concept. I just think it's pretty rubbish. I think it's a bad concept. I think it's a bad use of a term for something that we could call something else. But I haven't got a better answer yet. So <laughs> maybe fabric's it. I don't know. But it's it's re it's it's reconfirming the problem that I have with this grammar of thought. And like, oh, it's a fabric. What does that even mean? And how is that going to help somebody think past the separation of the individual from the fabric? And, and just one more point at the very bottom of this, and this is something that he doesn't do enough. Um, I've put a note there and it says onto, which means ontology. ontology. Oh, sorry, one other thing. Just just on this text, because there's a bit on the left up towards the top of this last page. So I'm on 174. It says NA, which means nah, as in no way. Man. Oh, okay. And, okay. and what he's put is here is there is no specific project which emerges out of this study. And I'm saying, oh, come on, mate. There is. There's loads. And he does say yeah. there's loads. You could do anything and everything. But I just think, I'm like, oh, come on. Set it up. Tell me what's next. Yeah. Um, because I'll, I'm driven and I know what I'm going to do and I know what I'm going to achieve and, I, and, and, I, and I'll pull a project out of this. But most people won't be like that. Most people will get to the end and they'll go, oh, there's no real project I could do following this. Oh, all right, fuck it, that was I, interesting. But I'll best yeah, get I actually, to someone else. I'm less offended by the first part of what you underlined, but the second sentence, because the second sentence is where he says, and I think this actually would offend you even more, <laughs> neither is there a distinct method or procedure because... These ideas do point to specific methods and totally. procedures, right? Like, that's one yeah. of the powers of it. And I don't think, like you were saying, theory and method are always intertwined to some degree. Yeah. If you're making an argument about this radical inter intersubjectivity, how could they not tell us something about studying the social world, right? That ha exactly. It has to. 
So that that was the part. The first part I was fine. You know, that's the classic humble statement. You know, I don't have a specific thing. I'm hoping you get something from it. But in, there's there's a methodological claim here. There has yeah, to be. And, and you can probably guess where I'm going to go with that is that I want to understand this. And you need immersive, immersive research, intimate familiarity to understand and be able to capture that radical intersubjectivity, that, that communication that happens in that embodied way, that does not come through in surveys. Fundamentally, your, your, your surveys are completely tied to one element of intersubjectivity. And he's telling us this too. And I reckon the other one is more important. So there's a massive methodological contribution and it's my methods <laughs> that I'm trying yeah. to like, like yeah. do. So, so yes, you're right. You've seen that bit as well, which again, that's why I put Nas like, come on, mate. No, I'm not into that. But then the last one is Onto. So it puts, uh, to confront the question of interdictivity is to consider the types of beings that we are. Bang. Ontology. And I wish he'd had a section about that as well, which is like, listen, I'm, I'm talking about what exists. And, and when we talk about what exists, we're also then probably going to talk about how we can know it, epistemology, um, and the source of world in which we belong. Again, ontolo ontological questions. So he's doing ontology all the way through. So he could have ended with, here's my ontology, here's the epistemology. Yes, there's others. Yes, you can take this different ways, but here's where they are. And he does it. And we can see it. You read it, and and you read it, and you've not read the whole thing, and I, and, I, and and it... And it's like, it's there, Nick. Come on. But yeah, it, it, I think when I read it, I get he's just setting it up for us and he's not bothered about that next age. He was probably finishing this and already on to the next book. And that's the way his mind works. And that's great. And I love that there's people like that. And I work like that as well. But I, I want the, the one-two punch at the end, which I think we're missing. Yeah. I mean, and there is, I go back and forth on this, right? Because there is something wonderful about, this book has such value, especially... Yeah. At people at a, a particular point in their training, we both found it at around, around the same time. We had a project that was a very, uh, you know, it was, it was based in this very embodied practice. And here's this book that just lays out the field. And there's yeah. something, and laying Amazing, out the field yeah. without saying, this is what you have to do next. That is a pretty, that is a nice offering to totally, all academics yeah. out there. So I do think there's something wonderful about that. Yeah, you just we're just kind of straight into trying to analyze him personally, aren't we? And it's so it's so difficult to do. And I think we've we've probably got a half decent read on some bits, and we're probably completely wrong in others. But yeah, the book, the, and yeah, again, I can just imagine him just being like, right, this is it. I've said my bit, straight on. And and if you're doing social theory, you've got to, you've got to be addicted to the knowledge and the learning and the understanding. You've got to be to do that reading, right? Whereas I'm kind of trying to understand a specific thing and I'm going to relate this to this thing. So that's where I'm going to be, right? I'm going to be finishing with like, I've helped you understand concussion and joy of sparring and bang, bang, bang. And, but also the fabric of social life and like laid this out. And you need to read Crossley's work because he's done a better job than me. But this is where we go with this. And this is what is next. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, that's been really useful as well for me thinking about this. One of the things just to kind of, because we've, bumped this back a couple of weeks one of the things that i've had is i'm going to barcelona next week to write just literally going to work there and write and i'm i've been trying to get much through this book again before i go but also so that we can have this conversation so it's kept me kind of like properly deep in this to try and kind of keep me there and then i go away for a week and i write as much as i can for a week and i've got to come back and i've got to resubmit a paper which i don't want to do i've been putting it off because i'm so into this but yeah, so this is these conversations, this setting up for this conversation has helped me like really stay locked down on this book for a bit, which anyone who's doing social theory 
I think that's the way to do it. I really do. I talk about it in terms of deep reading on some of the videos that I've recorded. I've also talked about it in terms of becoming obsessed. I've got, again, it's something on the membership site which people can have a look at. It's only two quid to sign up for the membership site. It's two quid a month, but you can just cancel it. It's just so that I, I get a bit of help with the, the running costs. Um, but there's a video on there about becoming obsessed. And what I'm trying to say there is, you know, with all the caveats is that I don't know anything about mental health and that I've probably got screwed up mental health myself, um, becoming obsessed has been what has made me have a career, like at moments. Like I'm pretty robust, so I think I can get obsessed and pull myself out. And I, and I push that boundary quite a lot. I push it with my physical health boxing I push it with my drinking I push it with going out and partying I've always pushed and I do that exactly the same with this sort of stuff um and it's like part of my personality we've talked about Nick's personality like we're obviously quite different people um and it's a part of that enables me to get into these ideas without really having the best academic background right some other people will get into this and read it superficially and casually and probably get it because they've got a better background than me and that's sort of educational place but for me getting obsessed is quite useful let's call it there this, this was great this was fun i mean we could we could spend a lot more time talking about this stuff and hopefully this is the start of some more future conversations so no worries cheers appreciation goes to jeffrey gilbert for providing theme music suny brockport for providing financial support and most importantly on behalf of me kyle green thank you for giving theory a chance